Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold the peter schiff show today is the first friday in may and so that means we got the April jobs report released today. And before I actually get into the details of the jobs report, I want to talk about what happened with the Fed this week, because I think that is the most significant news of the week. In fact, I think it's the Fed's uh, statement on Wednesday and the comments from today. That's the real reason we had the 300 plus point rally in the Dow today. That's why we had the 400 plus point turnaround in the Dow on Thursday. I think it's all about the Fed and its willingness to tolerate higher inflation. So we got the announcement on Wednesday. The Federal Open Market Committee met, as I mentioned on the podcast I did Tuesday, two-day meeting, and as expected, they left interest rates unchanged. But the most significant part of the statement that accompanied their decision not to raise rates was inserting the word symmetrical in their description of inflation. Because up until uh, Wednesday, the Fed was always worried that we didn't have enough inflation, that the inflation rate was too low and their goal was to get it up to their 2% level. Well, now the Fed is saying that they basically they're there. They're at 2%, but they expect the rate to actually go above 2%, and they're okay with it. What they mean by symmetrical 
is that inflation was below 2%, at least the way they measure it. I mean, it's probably always been well above it, but let's just look at the government statistics. And based on the government statistics, which is all they actually care about, we had inflation of 1.4, 1.5, 1.6, right? It was always below 2 by a bit. And so now what they're saying is we can have some symmetry on the upside, meaning, all right, well, we can have 2.5 because 2.5 and one and a half, you know, the average is two. And so what the Fed is really saying is their goal is not to have 2% inflation. Their goal is to have inflation that averages 2%. And so if we've had inflation of under 2% for all these years, well, we can have inflation over 2% by the same proportion for the same number of years And then we would have averaged 2% inflation for the entire time. So in reality, what the Fed is really doing, and I've been saying this all along, I mean, for years and years, they're actually lifting their inflation target because it's not 2% anymore. It's actually somewhere above 2% so that we can just create a 2% average over a long period of time. And, you know, if the cost of living has managed to go up so much, when the Fed was trying to keep inflation below 2%, or when it was below 2%, and the Fed was trying to get it up to 2%, imagine how much you know, higher the cost of living is going to rise when the Fed is acknowledging it's above 2%, and it's comfortable with inflation being higher than 2%, so long as the rise is symmetrical. And I thought that was a very significant statement. I don't know if anybody really picked up on it. I think the markets are are, are taking it uh, and, and running with it, uh, whether or not it's getting a lot of play in the financial media, because to the extent that the Fed is going to allow higher inflation, that means that there's not going to be as many rate hikes down the road. And, you know, inflation can be perceived as positive for the stock market because, When you have inflation, prices go up. That includes the price of stocks. Also, when you have inflation, uh, you wipe out debt. Inflation is terrible for lenders. It's good for the borrower. And of course, U.S. corporations are loaded up with debt. And so if they think there's going to be more inflation, well, then it means that a lot of that debt gets wiped out due to inflation. And so for the equity investor, the fact that inflation is going to be higher is going to be seen as a good thing. You know, also... When the Fed came out with their statement, they dropped the language about the improvements in the economy. It seemed like the Fed was acknowledging that growth was faltering. At least they came as close to acknowledging that as you're going to get. So basically what the Fed is saying is inflation is going to be above 2%. We're no longer worried that it's below 2%. It's going to be above 2% and we're okay. We're not going to feel that we have to rein it back in, right? The Fed doesn't want the markets thinking that if inflation is 2.2, 2.3, 2.4, 2.5, that the Fed is going to have to actively try to reduce it back down to 2. So they're acknowledging higher inflation. They're also acknowledging less growth. What's that? That's stagflation, right? Growth is slowing and inflation is accelerating. That is actually the worst of all possible worlds uh, for the economy and for the Fed, But right now, nobody is paying attention to that. Uh, They just saw this as an excuse uh, to buy into the market. And in fact, look at the comments that came out today. There are a number of Fed officials 
that we're speaking today, but I think the the best comments came from John Williams, who's probably, you know, he's the San Francisco uh, Fed president. He's a voting member, FOMC. This guy's got a lot of clout. And he said that he is fine with inflation overshooting a 2% by a modest amount. I mean, first of all, What's a modest amount? I mean, I don't even know how he defines modest. Uh, But I have a feeling that the definition is never going to be openly stated. But whatever it is, uh, it's going to be bigger and bigger and bigger. Because I think no matter how high above 2% inflation gets, the Fed is going to do nothing in response. Because it can't do anything in response. It, It can't raise rates more aggressively than it's already doing. Uh, because of the fragility of the economy and to the extent to which it depends on artificially low interest rates. In fact, one of the other uh, quotes uh, that um, Williams made is he said that he is comfortable with inflation being above 2%. Well, that's great, right? It's, it's fantastic that John Williams is comfortable with inflation above 2%. I don't think the average American consumer is going to take much comfort in knowing that his cost of living is going to be rising even faster in the future than it has been in the past? What about bondholders? How comfortable are bondholders going to be when inflation is above 2% uh, when they're barely earning 2% on their bonds now? I mean, you're not even getting 3% on a 10-year treasury, right? You're getting, what, 2.95. Well, if inflation is above 2, let's say inflation is 2.5. Well, you're getting 2.5% Inflation, if your yield is only 2.95, you're not even getting 50 basis points. But of course, after taxes, you're losing money because treasury bond yield is not tax-free. The federal government still taxes you on the money you earn on treasuries. So after taxes, if you're getting a 2.95% coupon, if there's 2.5% inflation, you are losing money. Right, your after-tax yield is negative. So you know maybe John Williams is comfortable with negative yields on U.S. Treasuries, but are owners of U.S. Treasuries going to be comfortable with negative yields? You know, before I get into talking about the markets, uh, the stock market, and everything else, let me mention the crude oil market because I think that's kind of relevant to this whole uh, topic of of inflation and getting higher. So we had new highs today in the oil market. Oil prices closed at 69 spot 72. I don't think we actually touched 70. I think we got maybe to 69.99 or that close to 70, but we could easily take out $70 a barrel next week. So oil prices are continuing to rise even though the dollar was stronger, right? The dollar uh, had another gain this week, and that means that oil prices for everybody else went up even more than they did for Americans. So you're talking about inflationary pressures being evident all around the world. I mentioned this on my last podcast, you know, how the Canadians are now paying a record price at the pump for gasoline. Well, they just set another record now after today's increase. They're going to raise uh, prices. But this is going to be happening in Europe. All these countries, right, that have these ridiculously low interest rates and the, the justification the rationalization maybe is a better word, but that's how they justified it to the public, was that this is necessary because inflation is not high enough. 
Well, gas prices surging is going to change that narrative very quickly. And ultimately, that is going to be very negative for the dollar if other central banks have to finally stop talking about QE and cutting rates or keeping rates low and have to start raising rates because it's higher interest rates that are going to impose the most damage here in America because we are the biggest debtor. We are the country that's most dependent on artificially low interest rates. We are the country that has the most amount of debt that needs to be financed and that more importantly needs to be financed externally because we have no real domestic savings pool. Our citizens are broke. So we need to go around the world with our hat in our hand and ask for money. And the way we've been able to do that is because interest rates have been so low. Well, if inflation is picking up, there's a limit to how long central banks can can keep this up. Now, I said uh, earlier that the Fed is going to allow inflation to be above 2%. And as it creeps higher, they're going to hide behind the idea that it's, it's symmetrical and it's okay because, you know, we were below 2% for so long that we could be above it for a while. And then they're going to say it's transitory or, you know, whatever they're going to say, uh, they're going to have to come up with all sorts of rationalizations why they're not doing anything. But at some point, right, they're going to have to do something. Maybe inflation gets to 3% or 35 or 4%. Now the markets are going to lose patience. Wait a minute. This is not symmetrical. This is not moderate. So what are you going to do? Right? Then it's put up or shut up. But there's nothing they can do. There's also a good chance that by the time inflation gets to 3.5-4% officially, unofficially, which means it's much, much higher than that, but we can already be in a recession. Right? And how is the Fed going to fight inflation in a recession when their supposed tools to fight recession mean creating additional inflation. How does the Fed fight recession? They print more money. They cut rates. Well, if you do that while you have an inflationary problem, you're throwing gasoline on the fire. And, you know, by the way, if we get inflation up at 4%, if the Fed allows inflation to get up there and hasn't done anything about it under the grounds that, well, you know, we're just trying to have this symmetry and we were below it, so now we're above it. Now they're really, really late to the game. How are they going to rein in this inflation? Because you need to get ahead of the curve. In fact, the minute the Fed sees the inflation rate above 2%, they should already be applying the brakes, you know, because they should realize that there's momentum there, right? And so if we're at 2%, 2.1, 2.2, we're going to be accelerating. You've got to start to get ahead of that curve and you got to start reining it in before it gets out of control. Because you wait for inflation to get to 4% or maybe even 3%. I don't think it goes as high as 4%. Now what are you going to do? I mean, an extra quarter point rate hike ain't going to do anything. you got to get out in front of the curve, right? You've got to make interest rates higher than the inflation rate in order to try to rein the inflation back in. Because if you just have these manby-pamby, you know, quarter point hikes, inflation is going to keep getting worse because you're never going to catch it. You got to get interest rates to be high in in a real terms. If you're simply behind the curve the entire time and playing catch up to inflation, then it's going to keep getting worse and worse. You, the Fed needs to get way out in front of the inflation curve in order to stop it. But they're never going to be able to do that if they wait so long, right? That's why that old expression about inflation being the genie that you're not supposed to let out of the bottle, right? So if they really want to keep inflation in check around 2%, the minute they're above it, 
They need to start really, you know, trying to do something about it, start raising rates. And they don't want to do that. I mean, they've already told the markets that they're going to continue to raise rates at a certain pace, but that was based on inflation being below 2%. But they don't want the markets to come to the conclusion that they're going to raise at an even faster pace in the event that inflation is above 2%. So they're preparing the market to, you know, to, to just ignore uh, an increase of inflation, which is exactly what the Fed is going to do, which is why the inflationary problem is going to be far bigger than what uh, the Fed admits. But again, it's not just going to be the inflation that's going to be the problem. It's going to be the economy because the economy is slowing down. You know, we got a lot of economic data that came out this week. Most of it was below expectations, not all of it, but most of it, including the jobs number that came out today, which I am you know, going to get to. Now, despite this weak uh, jobs data, the Atlanta Fed, you know, which I mentioned, they started at 4.1. All they did is lower it down to 4. So they're still way up here in the stratosphere on where they think growth is going to be uh, for the quarter, even though there's no real economic data that would suggest a 4% GDP number, including the jobs numbers that came out today. So let, let, me, let me get to the jobs report. Remember, last month we had a very weak number. 103,000 jobs was what they reported for March. And so people were looking for a rebound. I mean, 191 was the consensus, but there were some people looking for even bigger numbers. And the number we got, 164,000. So about 30,000 shy of the consensus. Although they did upwardly revise last month's 103,000 up to 135. So if you take you know the two together, it's about a push. But I think there was a general expectation that that 103,000 uh, number was going to be upwardly revised. So I don't think people were surprised uh, by that revision. In fact, maybe there were people that were looking for an even bigger revision. But overall, it is a weak number because we have 135,000 jobs created in March and 164,000 in April. What is that average? What, about 150,000 or something like that? That is still... A, a pretty weak number. And by the way, I mean, these numbers, again, they're not all that accurate. Remember, every month they have this birth death model that they use. And what the birth death means is that the, the government, you know, they assume that uh, new businesses were formed every month in the country. And they don't really know uh, how many people these new businesses hired. So they just guess, right? They make it up. So for last month, April, the assumed jobs that were created from these companies that supposedly started up in the month was 260,000. I mean, that's a big number, 260,000 jobs. That's a lot more than the actual number that we supposedly created, which means that all the job creation came from these new companies that supposedly sprang into existence. Because if they didn't come here, we would have lost 100,000 jobs. But fortunately, these companies that nobody actually knows if they exist they just they went into business and they hired all these workers. Well, what if what if they did what if none of this happened? What if this is all in the imagination of the guys at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, right? I mean, so it's very easy that none of these jobs were created. We could have just easily lost jobs, is gained 164,000 jobs. Of course, the headline number, the big number that Donald Trump is probably going to be tweeting about and is all excited about, is the unemployment rate is now 3.9. That is the first time we've had a three handle on the unemployment rate. I think in like 17 years or 19 years, I forget 
uh, the exact number. But it's no more honest a number than it was when it was 5%, and Donald Trump was saying it was a hoax, a scam, a fraud, a con, a joke, right? It was really, it wasn't 5%, it was 30%, it was 40%, or whatever it was. Well, same thing applies now. 3.9 is a con, a bigger con, a bigger joke, a bigger fraud. And whatever the unemployment rate was uh, when Trump was a candidate, you know, it's not much lower now, if it's lower at all, you know, as far as what the unofficial rate is. Remember, the main reason that the unemployment rate is so low, or there's two reasons that it's so low, actually, two main reasons. One is so many able-bodied Americans that should be working and who are not employed are not considered unemployed. Well, why are they not considered unemployed? Because they are not actively looking for work. Right? So they don't have jobs, right? They don't wake up early in the morning and drive to work or take the train to work. They sleep in, right? They, they're not working, but they're not unemployed. Now, the question is, why are these people not looking for work? Well, one reason may be that they gave up years ago, right? And they're discouraged, right? They, 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 they would look for work if they thought they could find a job, right? But, but that they don't think they're going to find one, so they don't work. Now, you have another group of people who just don't want to work. Even if they think there's a job out there, they just don't want the job. Now, why would people not want a job? Well, I mean, maybe the jobs that they could qualify for don't pay enough to make it worthwhile. You know, the government gives you an alternative, right? If you if you don't work, you get money from the government, right? You, you get something. You get some welfare. You get food stamps. You get housing assistance. So, you know, why, why work a crappy job at low wages when you can get paid for doing nothing? So you have a lot of people that are in that situation that they decide, look, I'm I'm not going to work. I don't, you know, I can't get a job that pays me enough money uh, in order to make it worthwhile to work. This is particularly true for maybe women that have kids that they get the most amount of welfare and they have the most to lose if they go out and get a job. Because not only do they lose all their welfare, but now they have to pick up childcare expenses. So, you know, the highest marginal tax rate in the country is a, a, a mom with kids who's on welfare getting a job. I mean, the tax rate is so enormous. I mean, unless you can get a job making maybe 75 to 100 grand a year, she'll never take it, which means a lot of these people will never work. No matter, you know, no matter how many jobs are available, they just can't afford to give up all their welfare benefits and pay taxes and assume childcare expenses in order to take those jobs. So this is why the unemployment rate is so low. In fact, we had, I think, 230,000 people left the labor force again last month. Right, the labor force participation rate dropped back down from 62.9 to 62.8. People made a big deal, I think, when it moved up to 62.9, but no, moving right back down to 62.8, and it's going to continue to fall. That is the story of this 3.9% unemployment. Now, the other uh, major reason for the 3.9% unemployment is all the people who are underemployed are not counted as being unemployed. Way back when, and I forget when it was changed, if you had a part-time job but were actively looking for a full-time job, you were still considered unemployed, right? Today, if you have any part-time job, even if you work for an hour and you spend the rest of the week looking for a job, you're not unemployed because you work for an hour. So that's not really fair, you know, to count people who are actually looking for jobs but can't find them. And so to make ends meet, they accept a part-time job while they're looking for a full-time job. Those people are unemployed. But 
not according to the government. So that those are the two main reasons. The people leaving the labor force completely and the people who have settled for part-time jobs, that's why the unemployment rate is so low. And who know, you know, it's going to continue I guess to be low until we have some massive layoffs which are going to come. Right? They're going to come at some point. And when they start, the unemployment rate is going to skyrocket. But of course, by then it's going to be too late for anybody to theoretically react to it with any kind of policy. Now let's look at the uh, average hourly earnings, which are pretty closely watched, right? Because everybody is betting on the consumer, right? The consumer, we got this low unemployment, so clearly uh, people are going to start earning more money. Well, the original uh, estimate for last month was 0.3 gain. And I remember even last month people thought, oh, that was good. It was 0.3. Uh-uh. They revised it down to 0.2, right? So it wasn't 0.3. It was only 0.2, which people wouldn't have been excited about. But it shows you that the numbers are so low that people actually got excited that it was 0.3 instead of just 0.2. Now, they were looking for 0.2 for April, but we only got 0.1, 0 0.1. I mean, basically zero. So last month's wage gains was revised down, and this month's was lower than expected. So wages are not growing. Now, year over year, remember at one point, I forget how many months ago, we had a 2.9% year-over-year year average hourly wage gain, that's now down to 2.6. In fact, they revised last month, which was 2.7, down to 2.6. And now year-over-year year April is down to 2.6. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the actual rate of inflation year-over-year year is more than 2.6, right? The Fed might not be acknowledging it or the government, I forget where we are, 2.1, 2.2. Yeah, there's no way that's right. So clearly, the prices are rising much faster than are people's wages. So real wages are falling. And that is part of the problem because Americans can barely survive on the wages they have now. But as inflation erodes away their value, then it makes survival that much more difficult. And we know inflation is going to accelerate. Not only do we see that in prices, but the Fed is already preparing us for it. Inflation is going to go up and they're comfortable with it. They're fine with it because it's symmetrical, because it's modest. Well, so, you know, when you think about 4% inflation, that may not seem like a lot, but 4% is the level that the CPI got to when Richard Nixon imposed wage and price controls. And of course, back then, the CPI was far more honest than it is today. So 4% was probably 4%. Today, we're probably already above 4% when we're at 2% or 25 wherever we are. But if the Fed is willing to allow inflation to be at 2.5% or whatever because it's symmetrical, you're not that far away from 4 And by the time you get to 4 it's so bad, at least it used to be considered so bad, that they tried draconian measures to rein it in. Wage and price controls obviously didn't work, created shortages. That's why we had the big oil shortage. Uh, was because of price controls, natural gas had price controls. And, you know, price controls basically try to cover up the effect of inflation because inflation is caused by government. Inflation is increased in money supply. It's all the cheap money. The result is that prices rise. And so price controls are designed to cover up the symptoms. But, of course, it doesn't stop the disease. The disease gets worse. And eventually you got to remove the price controls and then prices really shoot up. In the meantime, you have shortages or you have clever ways around the price controls, which is what was going on during the 1970s. But the point is, 
If 4% inflation is so bad that you're going to take a desperate measure to try to rein it in, why, why risk it getting up there? I mean, once you're above 2%, why not try to slow it down? The fact that the, the Fed is, is so uh, willing to accept higher inflation really shows you how limited their ability is to do anything about it. Because believe me, if they thought they could prevent inflation from going north of 2%, they would do it. But the reason they're not going to do it is because as far as they're concerned, the cure is worse than the disease. If they actually had to fight inflation by raising rates sufficiently to actually do it, the collapse of the economy based on all the leverage as far as they're concerned is much worse than just allowing inflation to get worse and hoping for the best, right? Well, the meaning of symmetry, the meaning of modest is going to continue to change. Just like, remember when the unemployment rate got below, I think, 5%. I mean, there was, you know, for years, the Fed hadn't even started raising rates because they kept saying, well, if unemployment gets below, and maybe it was five and a half. I forget where the level was. But even though we got below it, 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 it took them a, a years before they actually started raising rates, right? They it constantly moved the bar. So that's what they're going to do with inflation. Even though they haven't actually set the bar, right? They just said symmetrical and, and moderate, whatever it is. So, but wherever the bar is, it's, we're never going to hit it. They're going to keep on moving it until it's too late. I mean, at some point, the markets will probably force an issue because the bond market is going to have to come under some intense pressure, and so is the dollar, which I mentioned earlier, the dollar rallied on the week. Gold also declined. Interestingly enough, gold stocks didn't have that bad a week. I mean, I think the GDX was down slightly, but the juniors, the GDXJ, actually rose on the week despite the fact that gold was down and despite the fact that the stock market in general was up. And generally, you know, a big rally in the stock market might not be good for gold. So gold stocks hung in there, rather, even in the face of strong U.S. stocks and a strong dollar and a weak gold price. So that shows a lot of support there uh, in, in the gold stocks, which probably shows a lot of support for gold at 1300 again we're probably gonna have to run up to that 1350 again and see if we can break through the resistance i think key to that might be the end of this dollar rally you know the dollar you know closed positive again today well off the highs of the day it's really had a big move too against the emerging market currencies bigger move there i think that it has in some of the major currencies again people jumping to the wrong conclusion that higher rates are going to be bullish for the dollar. They're not. Right? What we're getting is a slowdown in the U.S. economy. We're getting a pickup in inflation. We're getting exploding trade deficits, exploding budget deficits. None of this is good for the dollar. And we're getting this movement up in, in commodities, commodity prices, oil leading the way. Uh, but this, again, Higher oil prices are going to be a tax, another tax on the U.S. economy, on the U.S. consumer, which will negate a lot of the benefits of the actual tax cuts that a lot of people are relying on. Now, I want to also talk about that stock market reversal because we were down on uh, Thursday morning. We were down almost 400 points before we reversed. The Dow was getting close to breaking through 2350 which I think would have been a significant close if we closed below there. And we had this 400-point rally. We closed modestly positive. And then we had a 300-point rally again today. So better than 700 points off of yesterday's low, right? And NASDAQ did even better. In fact, the NASDAQ 
was the only index of the three to be positive on the week, right? Then, you know, the S&P and the Dow were still down uh, despite the gains that we had today. And the market was basically pinning this rally that we had yesterday on some comments that came out about, you know, how things were looking good uh, with the negotiations with China. And I don't really think that had anything to do with the rally. I think the rally was all about the Fed statement from the afternoon before about the symmetrical view on inflation, the fact that the Fed was basically raising the speed limit right on the economy, the way to look at it, by allowing additional inflation. Uh, This, I think, is why we had that rally. It was a bit of a delayed reaction because the release came out on Wednesday afternoon and initially the market dumped on Thursday. But I think as that set in, buying came in. And I think when we got that weaker than expected number that came out today, the initial reaction, the market sold off a bit. The Dow was down about 100 because, you know, the jobs number was weaker than they thought until the market realized that that's that's the good news because bad news is still good news for the market when the market is all about rates. And even though everybody expects the Fed to raise rates, the the fact that the jobs picture is slowing, even as the Fed is indicating a willingness to tolerate higher inflation would make people think that maybe we're not going to get as many rate hikes. For some reason, that's not in the currency markets yet. It will be. It's not in the metals market yet. It will be. And remember, when the Fed came out with their statement yesterday, even though the market's now still assigned a better than 90% probability that we're going to get a rate hike in June, the Fed didn't really mention anything about it. And it's possible that we won't get a hike in June. I don't know that it's a sure thing if the economy continues to print weaker numbers. And ironically, too, as inflation starts to pick up, even though the Fed has already said that that's not going to be a reason for them to be more aggressive with their rate hikes, higher inflation is a drain on the economy because it takes purchasing power away from the consumer. As the cost of basic necessities go up, the consumer has less money to spend on other things. And of course, the price of other things are going to go up too. And people don't have an unlimited amount of money. And so as prices rise, spending slows. Maybe you spend the same amount of money because you're paying higher prices, but you're buying less stuff. And what's going to happen is margins are going to end up getting compressed, especially if businesses are seeing their costs rise disproportionate to their ability to pass it on to the consumer in higher prices. I mean, maybe they pass on some of the increase, but maybe they have to absorb some of it because there's a breaking point for demand. The consumers are so stretched, they're relying on credit that they may have to absorb some of it. And so this ends up being a hit on profits, uh, which is also a negative for the economy. By the way, we also got to earlier in the week, the um, productivity numbers. And the productivity numbers came out weaker than expected. You know, they were looking for about a 0.9 tenths of a percent increase, and we got 0.7. But even 0.9 isn't a lot of productivity gain, and we didn't even get that. We got 0.7. And unit labor costs were up 2.7. I think they were looking for up 3, but up 2.7 was still, you know, uh, a, a healthy bump, even if it wasn't as big a bump as they thought. In fact, they revised the the prior quarter down from 2.5 to 2.1. But still, productivity is very slow because the first first quarter, it was 0.3, right? So you've got weak productivity, but you've got rising unit labor costs. I mean, that's more evidence of stagflation. 
right? And the Fed is, is indicating stagflation. The market signals are indicating stagflation, at least what you're seeing in, uh, in all the economic data, except investors still remain oblivious, particularly the bond market, right? Bond prices held up very well uh, despite all these comments. The yield on the, the tenure uh, still managed to close below 3%. In fact, yields were slightly down on on the week. And you would think if bondholders were really paying attention, if the Fed is signaling it is willing to tolerate higher inflation, that is negative for bondholders because part of the interest on a bond is to reimburse you for your losses due to inflation. So the higher inflation is going to be, the higher the inflation premium needs to be that's built into the interest that you get on a bond. So, so far, bond investors are oblivious to reality. But I don't think that they're going to be blind much longer. In fact, the only way that the Fed can keep a lid on bond prices in a world where inflation is known to be rising and the Federal Reserve is okay with it, they are going to have to buy the bonds. They are going to have to launch a whole new round of quantitative easing in order to prevent interest rates from rising. But of course, how do they do that while they're still talking about quantitative tightening? 